Our scripture today is Acts, 1, Acts 28, 1 through 16. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself to his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when they were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. All right. Thank you very much. That's a big passage. All right. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to put this. Oh, I should put these together. They're friends. Uh, good to see you guys. I haven't, I haven't, uh, I'm a little rusty. It's, I've been out for three weeks. Uh, but you have me for the next six. So uh, here's what we're going to do. Um, uh, I got it too high here. I'm breathing heavy, I guess. All right, check, one. I just won't breathe through my nose. Um, Okay, so uh, here's what we're going to do. This week and next week, we're in the last, I don't know if you're checking, but we're in the last chapter of the book of Acts. I'm going to wrap it up next week. Uh, We're going to start Romans in uh, September, the first week in September, and... I've been working, I don't want this one to drag out forever, this is what happens, stuff gets good, pandemics happen, and it just stretches everything out. Um, so I'm trying to streamline the book so we can get done in, wait for it, like 30 weeks, okay, like 30 sermons. It's 16 chapters, right, like less than two sermons per chapter, and it's a lot, it's the book of Romans, it's Romans, guys, it's Romans. Um, and we're going to read it backwards, um, this is going to be weird to you if you're really familiar reading the book of Romans, but here's what happens. You start reading the book of Romans, and you start at the beginning, and you're trying to figure out, okay, what's this book about? And you start reading, and you're like, ugh, start up front. And then you get a little farther, like, oh, this is heavy. And it just gets really, 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 really intense. And by the time you get to, like, chapter 9, 
you lose interest, and it's like, I'm all confused, I don't know what I'm talking about. So, what you have to do is start at the end of the book, get the context, there's a list of people, who are these people, what are they talking about, and then we're going to go back a little bit, and then we're going to go back a little bit, and then we're going to work our way back to the front. Uh, and by that point, you're going to be like, oh, now I understand how to read the book. So, Romans is one of the most important ancient books in existence, and I think people misread it, and that's why they hate Paul. Uh, I think if you were to read it right, the right way, which is backwards, um, then you are actually going to see what Paul was doing and how revolutionary it was throughout the world uh, and, and what it means for all of us. I think this is the perfect time in American civilization to read the book of Romans, um, and you'll see why. Um, geez, I just want to keep going with that. Okay, so uh, second, uh, we have, um, yeah, we have, we've been having to shut down kids' rooms lately because we have been running out of workers. And so, uh, you know, some of you have been here a while and, and people have been serving you and I'm glad you've been served. It's awesome. Your turn. Um, I, I need, we need your help. Like, do we need, um, like, my wife works back there and she's like, yeah, we had to, we had to send away six, eight families, I think, one week because there wasn't room for their kids. Um, and so, it's, uh, at, and then, so pretty soon we're going to be changing some stuff up and trying to find ways to meet all these needs. And one of those is going to include the kids being in here uh, probably once a month because we have to figure out some way to like get everybody to the right places. Um, so that may help push you uh, to help serve. Um, we'll give them all crinkly wrappers and bags of chips and Funyuns. <laughs> the smell, the sound, it'll really help. I want to serve all of a sudden. And, uh, but we need children's workers, so uh, talk to Elizabeth back there. We really do need it. We, we, need, we, need, we need a lot of uh, servants in different parts of the church, so um, feel free to email us through the website or whatever if, if you're interested in that. Um, and last, I'm going to be talking more about this in a few weeks, um, but me and my wife in November are having our, our, our 20th anniversary, and I, I just wanted you guys, so oh, thank you. Thank you. I think we're going to make it. Um, <laughs> And my, uh, I, I've been told I should communicate to you clearly about what's going on. Uh, we're going to disappear for a month or so, like later on in the year. I've been doing a lot of traveling, a lot of work, and we came through COVID and all that. And we're like, okay, 20th anniversary, this only happens once. We're going to go somewhere for a month or so. We don't know where yet. We're still working on it. Um, but we're just going to like, you know, be us for a bit and, uh, and recharge and spend time with the family. And in the few coming weeks, I'll be explaining to you how this is going to work with, uh, with the church and, and what's going to what's going to happen and, and who's going to be doing what and, 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 uh, and you'll be well taken care of. We've been planning this for over a year. So, um, yeah, that's it for me. A lot of announcements today. That could be like the whole sermon. It's announcement Sunday. All right, so I'm going to pray and let's jump into this passage and, uh, and get going, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that uh, uh, you would join us here now. We gather here not to... Um, not to do anything else than submit to you. I pray that we would um, be able to examine our lives and our hearts. I pray that we would be able to ask the question, was this formed by the world or was this formed by God, this part of my life and that part of my life and that part of my life. Um, I pray that you would become the center of everything. I pray that, that Jesus, the, 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 the life that, that, that Jesus lived, the, the teachings that he had as he walked here, the way that he loved um, his friends, his enemies, his community, um, the, the way that he lived and sacrificed and poured out for them, I pray that that, that cross-shaped life would become part of our life, that we would begin to emulate you in all of these ways. Um, may that begin this morning uh, through the worship, through the communion together. May your healing begin to work uh, in all of our lives. May we see each other 
If some people are rejoicing, let us rejoice with them. If some people are mourning, let us mourn with them. If some people are in struggle, let us join them in the struggle for whatever they are uh, reaching for, if it is of you. And so, um, be here, guide us. Thank you, Father. Amen. All right, so we're doing a lot of work this morning. We're doing several things, um, sort of like two or three sort of main ideas, and I think they all sort of circle around the same idea. So we are arriving in Rome. Paul, finally, after his massive journey, arrives in Rome, which is perfect because we're going to be checking out the church um, that was in Rome over the next year or so. When I say 30 weeks in Romans, remember, there's also guest speakers and there's holidays and blah, 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 blah. So it's going to be, it's going to be next year about this time when we're done, and then we're going to jump into Revelation. Just settle in. Where are you going? Um, okay. Uh, so he arrives in Rome, and his, uh, his mission sort of, sort of like the crescendo of the whole thing is here. He's going to sort of stand trial. There are books that are written that argue that, that the entire book of uh, two series of Luke and Acts, the entire thing was written uh, as sort of um, some sort of, um, sort of defense letter for Paul in court. It's, poss- it's a possibility. I've read some of those books and they make a pretty good case. Either way, Rome, Rome getting here is sort of the center of the whole thing. Um, and so we have this fascinating story I wanted to touch on in the first sort of four verses or so where Paul gets bit by a snake and it's this thing where like you're reading and you're like, this is a weird de- detail that, that Luke puts in here. And, and it's good to notice those weird details because a good question to ask, a solid question, I would say the most important question to ask when you're reading the Bible is, why in the world did the apostles save this story? Why is this story of any use at all to anyone? Why did they keep this? Why did they include this? Well, all of these letters are messages to churches, house churches gathered in different places, sometimes communities of house churches that come together like Watermark. Um, And so these letters are written to these communities and there are things that they want this whole community to ponder. So you you have a story like this where it says, Paul gathered a pile of brushwood so he's just, he's just survived a shipwreck. They come ashore, and they're sopping wet. They want to get warm, so they're going to build a fire. So Paul goes out and starts gathering brush to start a fire and serve the people who have brought him here as a prisoner, by the way. Um, and it says, Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. And when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, uh, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. Of course. Obviously. Um, for, the, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. Now, there's, uh, it's, and it says that he just kind of shook it off and he didn't get sick and he didn't die. And then they changed their mind about what he was. Um, but there's all kinds of interesting stuff. When you read this, you're like, okay, raises a lot of questions. First off, how did he survive a snake bite like this? Uh, second, like, why do they think he's a murderer? Because he got bit by a snake. Um, as one who has been bit by a snake, I'm, I wasn't a murderer. So, um, and, and, and then why, after he shakes it off, do they think he's a god? What's going on? So there is this very popular book in the ancient world called The Greek Anthology. Uh, and it is a, uh, a collection of poems and, and, and what they call epigrams from the, uh, the earliest of which came out about... 150, 200 years before the birth of Christ. So these things were in circulation. It's thick. There are copies of it around. You can get a copy right now off Amazon for like five bucks and you can read it. It's fascinating. Um, And if you do read it, you're going to come across a story that recounts a shipwrecked mariner who comes ashore and survives the shipwreck um, and he's a murderer 
And he survives a shipwreck and, and he's been chased by like the, the God of the sea and he survives it, tried, tried to wipe him out and bring him to justice. And so he comes ashore and he survives and he falls asleep on the shore. And while he's sleeping and regaining his strength, a viper uh, bites him because the goddess Justice has been pursuing him and has sent the viper and the viper strikes him and he dies. Okay, so this story was very popular in this area, in the Greek world, um, and here on the island of Malta, it appears that they knew the story because they are, it, it, this is like an echo of the story, right? So there's not something super weird going on here. This is, this is Luke writing to the people there, uh, and in the ancient world, if you would have received this letter, you probably would have read this and understand, of course they thought he was a murderer. He just arrived a shipwreck and got bit by a snake. Duh. Um, it's like saying... You know, if I start my story with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so they're using this sort of language, and they understand it. Uh, and then it says that he, it says uh, he, he sort of shook it off over the fire, and, and, and the snake fell off and died in the fire. And then suddenly, they think he's a god. Uh, so they instantly change their mind, like, oh, it didn't kill him. He survived. He's not a murderer at all. He's actually just and perfect. He must be a god. And so... Um, there's like, it, it seems that Luke wants this story here as well as the account of the onlookers sort of in order to make some point about how we perceive people because this little story sort of, if you take the idea, they thought he was this, but, he, but then they thought he was this, but he's neither of these things. Um, he's just, he's literally just Paul. Uh, and, and, and this sort of idea that it's just Paul, it sort of takes hold for this whole 16 verses the way that he's treated the whole time on the shipwreck, the way, he, the way he arrives at Rome, the way people look at him, the way people treat him. Some people are treating him like a prisoner. Some people are treating him like this prophet delivered from God. And, and, and the whole time, there's sort of this, sort of this tension about, about who this guy is and how to treat him. And even the people who look at him as a prisoner end up treating him like a friend and family. He's, he's, he's going up to the... Up to the uh, he's, he's a prisoner, again, like, and he goes to the, the head of the island, the governor, and, and, and heals the man's daughter, and then people are bringing all these people that are sick to this prisoner to be healed. And so, like, there's this conversation about identity. There's this conversation about who Paul is and how we are to view Paul um, and how Paul views himself that it looks like they want to talk about here. And so there's this... Um, there's this triumphal procession sort of moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that there for a second. I'm going to talk about uh, this idea called a triumphal procession. It's this Roman thing. And I'm going to come back to this in a second. So there's, there's this thing in the ancient world that was called the, the triumphal procession. Uh, and it, it was something that... that there's really several occasions. There's the occasion when they, they, it's like a giant parade where a visiting dignitary, a very powerful man, visits your city, and he's got armies, and he's got dancers singing. It's very Aladdin. Um, and they're marching in, and it's like, Prince Ali, and, and people juggling. And, and sometimes they would throw out gifts and stuff. It really is, it, it, can be, it, it could have been like this huge, interesting thing sometimes, especially after battles, after they won, a conquer, like Romans conquered some city because they're bringing back giraffes and they're bringing back alligators and hippos and animals from the land that they've conquered from far away and bringing back these things. And the people are just like, look at this animal, it's massive. Look at this one. Uh, and, and they're just shocked at what they're seeing because they've never seen anything like it. And so everyone would sort of take part in these, these processionals. Uh, it, it, always, it always happened when um, really powerful people were visiting your city. Sometimes the emperor would just be paying your city a visit. And so what you would do is you would send out... Um, uh, uh, what's called like a sort of an appentesis is what they would have called it. It's a group of people to go out and meet them 
and to sing and dance and cheer and announce their, their coming uh, into the city. And they would cross through the gates into the city and everyone would gather and meet him. So the, the word, we translate it as meet, but the word is apentesis. And it means more than just meeting somebody at the store or meeting somebody at school. It, 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 it's this meeting of a dignitary and celebrating their entrance into the, into the city in which you're living. Because if the governor, the, Ro- the, the Roman emperor is coming to visit your city, that's a huge deal. You would never, you would only ever see pictures of, of this man on your coins, and that's it. Um, and so um, this apentesis, is, it seems to be on the mind of, of Paul here, uh, I'm sorry, of Luke when he's writing, but we're going to get to that in a minute. So there's a description of this in, in, uh, in, in First Thessalonians of one of these triumphal processions where this apentesis happens. Uh, there's one in the book of Thessalonians, First Thessalonians. I want to read that to you now to sort of give you some context for it. It says in First Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, uh, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the cloud to meet the Lord. The word meet right there is the Greek word apentesis. Uh, it's meet him in the air, uh, so that we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So here you have, you have Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he's, they already understand the ascension of Christ, how, how Christ, after the resurrection, um, ascended to the throne to rule. It's not, the idea of the ascension is not God's flying into space. Uh, the idea is he's ascending to the throne, like Jesus is now, has been resurrected to king. Um, and so you have this this picture of God sort of in the clouds ruling as king. Uh, and so Paul says, and one day he will live, dwell among us again. Right now we're here together. He is among us as the body of Christ, uh, indwelled by the spirit. So the body of Christ is here. But one day, Paul writes, the body of Christ will be present again. And, and, and the way he describes it is as an apentesis, a, um, a triumphal procession where Jesus comes in the clouds as he describes it. And it says, and we meet him there, but... This, has, this idea has been t- twisted in a way to tell the story of like, and then we all fly away somewhere over the last 150 years. They call it the rapture. I don't believe in that. I, I, I know Donald spilled the beans a, f- a while ago. I did believe that most of my life until I got into biblical scholarship and I realized nobody believed that before 150 years ago. Um, uh, and that's not ancient Christian teaching. But we'll get to that. We'll study the book of Revelation as well. And if you ever want to talk about it, let me know. I can send you some sermons that I've preached on the idea. Um, but what Paul is saying is he's using this as an apentesis. He says, he says, when the king comes, of course, we're going to celebrate his coming. How? Well, maybe we'll meet him and we'll dance and sing as, as we would for any king who is coming. And so you have this description here. Um, it was a well-known thing that everyone was aware of. You'd go out and sing and dance and meet the king and escort him in because the king is coming to visit. The king's not doing a like a near miss, like flying by. Um, and so there's this idea of that. And so... For the last 150 years or so, this verse has fallen victim to, I think, some bad theology. Um, and so it's something that Western evangelicals have, have believed really since, since the 1850s or so about, about a rapture. But this is, this is like this day where there's this glorious appearing and, and, and things are made right. And it's sort of this, the presence of Jesus falls upon the world and there's this moment of peace. The way Paul is describing it, he's using ancient Roman language to describe it. It's, it's what they understood. These are, these are Gentiles. These are Greeks. Um, and so then you have this other picture of, of, what, of what that might look like because Jesus actually had one himself. He, he had this triumphal procession. If you remember in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, it says they brought the donkey and colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So you have Jesus entering into the city on a donkey and they're decorating the donkey with all they have is their cloaks. These are poor peasants following Jesus. And it says in verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground 
uh, on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. So they're decorating the city for Jesus in the only way these poor people can. Um, And it says, and the crowds went ahead of him uh, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Hosanna in the highest of heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Again, another sort of Aladdin kind of moment, right? And, And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so Jesus performs this act. It's his version of a a triumphal entry, what the kingdom of God presents their kings as. The highest reigning king in all of the kingdom of God rides in on a donkey with peasants shouting his way. While while earlier that day at the same time would have been the the triumphal procession of Pilate and his his soldiers riding in on horses, not donkeys, covered in gold, plated armor and leather squeaking and rattling as they, as they march through with all of their um, heavy uh, weaponry that they're carrying and they're marching into the city in perfect formation and, and, and there's trumpets blowing and they're announcing the presence and the entrance of this governor. Um, and so Jesus has this act of, of sort of rebellion. Look at him displaying his power out there. Look, look, look at they think this is how peace comes to the world, through this display of violence and coercion and might. And we think we can make everybody submit uh, through fear. Here's how the kingdom of God works. And Jesus says, I want you to get me a donkey. And you guys will be my royal procession. And, and we're going to show them what the kingdom of God looks like. It's an upside down kingdom where the strongest rule from, from the bottom by giving up power to those who are weak. And we walk in this way. Um, and it's this way of like presenting power that was incredibly subversive and disruptive. And the people are like watching this and they're like, they've never seen a, a pr- pr- triumphal procession like this before. Like, who is this? Who is it that all these poor people flock around? that all these peasants and all these lowly people gather around. Um, and so this is textbook description of triumphal procession there when you see this. Um, and it was sort of meant to be this lesson on how God's people are to understand their kings, how they are to display power. They have a sword, we have a cross. They have an army, we have a community. They instill fear through coercion. We instill love through submission. We can change the world. They never will. They've been trying since the very beginning of the rise of humanity in the world. No war has ever brought about peace. It may keep it quiet for a little while, but then it rises up again, always. And so Jesus says, there is a better way. And as G.K. Chesterton would say, the only thing left untried is actual Christianity. We've tried everything else. Even the Christians haven't tried Christianity. Like, we haven't tried this yet. Um, And so, like, he's a lowly peasant, but he's a king. And so there's this conversation in this passage here that has to do with Paul, about like, who is Paul? How are we to look at Paul? And look what we have in verse 15. It says, the brothers and sisters there had heard. It's talking about the, 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 the church in Rome. They had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And so you have this band of Christians. In, in, the, in the city of Rome, spoiler alert, this is something I was going to talk about later, there's only like maybe top top estimate, maybe 200 Christians in the city of Rome at the time. It's about this size. All of the Christians in Rome that this ancient book was written to, called Romans, was a church about this size, split into groups of probably 20 or 30, that met in probably five or six house churches around, uh, well, we know pretty much where they met, Um, in the poorest neighborhoods. That's where they were, because they were poor, because that's who was drawn to Jesus at the time. Um... And so, let's see. 
they sent, apparently, a group of them, heard that he was coming, and they said, well, we're going we're gonna to give him a good apentesis. Even the word used to meet here, uh, as far as the three taverns to meet us, the word he uses there in the Greek is apentesis. This is our royal procession party. They came to meet us. And Luke now is traveling with Paul, the, the author of the book. Remember, the whole time it said, and they did this, and they did this, and they did this. And suddenly it's like, and we. Like, he's like, I'm in. Uh, I'm convinced. I'm one, of, I'm one of them. And so you have this party that comes to meet Paul there as royalty and to escort him into the city. And Luke says as much in the book. He's emphasizing like the honor sort of of Paul in the midst of his dishonor, how everyone else sees him as walking in chains under Roman guard as a prisoner. And the prisoner in the group receives a, a, a royal procession and gets treated with honor and given a place to stay and treated as a dignitary. Um, and I love the way he describes all of this. So they heard he's coming. They rush out to meet him. He's this criminal. Um, and so this is Paul's triumphal procession. Paul arrives under divine protection from, from, from both God and the emperor. Remember, in the first century, you were, you were trained to think of the emperors as gods as well. So, so he actually has the divine protection of God and the emperor under Roman guard. He's been told to take care of him and watch over him. This man cannot be killed. He will be protected no matter what because his mission is not over yet. Um, and so... Uh, he's greeted with honor. He's, he's greeted as God's heavenly, by God's heavenly citizens gathered there. Um, and so you have this, it starts off with this movement of them looking at Paul thinking, oh, he's a criminal. Oh, he's a God. Oh, he's, he's royalty. Oh, he's a prisoner. Who is this guy? But you get to the end of this passage, he was a Pharisee. Oh, he's a tent maker. He's, as you read the whole book of Acts, you, you see all these different sides. Um, and it's hard to pin him down. It's hard to pin down exactly how to describe him because we want everybody to be pinned down. I, I, I regularly get questions from my kids. Like I watch a lot of historical co- uh, documentaries and the kids are always sitting and watching and, and they're like, who's this? And I'm like, oh, that's JFK. And they're like, first question always, is he good or bad? You've been discipled well by the world already at your age. Is he good or bad? We're going to just decide what he is and, and dismiss him or embrace him based on the good or bad. And that's, those are the choices. Um, and I get it. It's, it's hard for kids to understand and deal with nuance. Um, they have to live, you, have to, you have to have a little bit of lived experience and understand that you yourself are neither good nor bad. <laughs> you yourself um, carry the ability to do both all the time. Uh, and so if he's not one, he's the other, right? They're either good or they're bad. And I tell them, uh, usually, you know, I, and sometimes I'll even like, they'll talk about somebody, I'll ask them, hey, do you think they're good or bad? What do you see that's good? What do you see that's bad? And I, I want to sort of disrupt how they look at people um, because everybody, everybody throughout history tends to view everybody as he's a criminal or he's a king. He's, 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 he's somebody who should absolutely be followed or somebody who could be completely rejected. But more often than not, we're just seeing what is shown to us by people who are heavily invested in the image, right? Um, and so Christians cannot really speak of each other as mere anything. That is not how we are called to see each other if we're looking through the eyes of Jesus at each other. Um, no one is mere anything. There's no one way to describe any of us. No Christian can admit to being all evil or all good. Um, and, and, I mean, for the most part, the average Christian tells 
a very different story on the outside from what is actually going on on the inside. We portray our best side possible to everyone. And so we have these finely curated images, especially now with social media. It didn't used to be like this. Um, It's always been that in the presence of people, they would put their best foot forward. But if you spent enough time with them, you would see who they really are. And so I've always tried to tell my kids, like, be the same person all the time. Be a genuine person. You should be able to welcome people into your life and spend you know, people that don't know you very well spend a certain amount of time with you and see that you're the same person. Because eventually the facade falls, you can't keep it up forever, except today online. You never meet these people in real life. You spend less and less time in the real world. And so what you see is these images of people um, over and over and over. And so they're all finely curated images that can't possibly ever, especially with, uh, it, it gets really shady with me with like Christian celebrities of any kind, because Christian celebrities are really incapable of, 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 of possibly telling the messy story of, the, of how Jesus is present in our everyday lives because it requires them to show victory all the time. I'm always on top of it. Everything's always good, never angry, never bitter. I, I weather the storm perfectly every time and this is all that people tend to see and so it's hard in this celebrity building age. Everyone wants to see more and more and more of you. That's why I always encourage pastors and, and other people of any kind of power, hey, you need to regularly be diminishing yourself. If your followers get too big, delete the whole thing and start over. Like you don't need to be doing this. We don't need to play this game. It's not good for them. It's not good for you. Um, and so there needs to be this understanding of like, this online presence thing or the way people view us or this curated image, it doesn't tell the story of Jesus. You think, it, you think it does. You think, Jesus turned me into a really good, perfect person. You're not telling the story of Jesus well. You have to be more honest. We have to start being more honest about who we are. We have the struggles that we have and, and, uh, and, and the ways we're just not sure about specific things. And we have to be honest and, and admit that we're all crawling towards Jesus together. I have my role, you have your role, and we're working together on this. Um, and so this is one of the reasons that I think reading and rereading the Gospels And the book of Acts is incredibly important because when you read the Gospels, you don't see these horrible people that become perfect people. You see horrible people that God uses (laughs) while they're horrible people to do amazing things. That that God is able to look past it and and pull out the good parts and cultivate them and bring them to the surface. Um, What we are not shown is these images that just get cleaned up. Like we, we even... And this is what bothers me as a songwriter about songs, worship songs that I hear today. They all start off with this. Things were bad. They were dark. But then I found Jesus. And now they're amazing. And that's bullcrap. <laughs> it's just not true. <laughs> Life goes on. People still stab you in the back. You still have to deal with, with struggles inside of you. There's still injustice, some of which you are taking part in and you recognize it and you want to repent of it. And, 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 and life moves through these these cycles of like there's some darkness and purging it and then sometimes it comes back there it is again and it purge it again and it's not honest to just tell one half of the story there are ways yes that people are healed and like there are things that I that ways that I was that I'm never going back to again but it didn't happen right away it's this it's this constant walk towards sanctification and so reading the rereading the, the gospels and the book of acts is important to me it reminds us that each disciple spent some time on the wrong side of morality that each were also carried through and allowed to then walk the path of Jesus as they were slowly as they changed and and you know we put a lot of emphasis on well if you just give people all the knowledge put it all on the inside it will change their outside and i'm not sure that that's true 
I think sometimes you have to invite people into the work, and I think the work of serving Jesus changes you. Uh, working, working with the actual tools, the garden rakes, oftentimes is much more effective than, than reading books about Jesus. Um, and when you do the work, it begins to change you because you begin to interact with brokenness in ways that you never have before. And what you begin to see is, especially when you read the Gospels, is that murderers really do become missionaries. Like um, traders of the Jewish people like Matthew, who are stealing money for the empire and keeping some of it for themselves, they become disciples of the Jewish Messiah and, and write books that we will read 2,000 years later that will lay out the message of Jesus from the mouth of a traitor to his own people, someone who took part in oppression, and Jesus is like, you're the one. We have these zealots that are following Jesus. They become these humble servants. There's fishermen that become saints. There are wandering rabbis like Jesus who, who, who are killed for treason and then become the king of all the cosmos. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's what you see, what you see is, is the work of God redeeming and changing and, and displaying his power through things that you would never expect it. That's what you see. And so you have this, uh, you have, um, I was reading a book by Philip Yancey, and there's this, uh, he, he quotes uh, Rabbi Bunham, so it's Rabbi Bunham being quoted by Philip Yancey, being quoted by me. Um, and, he, uh, and, and here's the words he said. he said, he said, a man should carry two stones in his pocket. One should be inscribed, I am but dust and ashes, and the other, for my sake, the world was created, and he should use each stone as he needs it. So like, it makes sense. Like there's moments where you just feel the darkness and you feel the guilt and the shame that you carry for the ways that you've treated people, the things that you've done, the back, the things that you regret, and you, you just, you feel the weight of. And you need that stone to pull it out and look at it and be reminded that the one you're going to, th- what are you going to throw at this darkness? You're going to throw, uh, but the world was created for me. Like God is active. God cares about my life. And the world, like, I, I, am, I exist as a human miracle. And so there's this level of comfort. But then there's other times where you just start feeling really good. You start judging everyone else. You start putting everybody in little, little labels and boxes and pushing them out as, you're bad, uh, you're okay. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're good, because you're just like me. Um, and, and that's when we need to pull out the other stone, because that's more darkness. And the stone you hurl at that darkness should say, I am dust and ashes. Who am I? to walk into this place and sit in the seat of judgment over anybody. That is Jesus' seat, not mine. I'm here to bring them to Christ and let God do his work. And so I like the words of this rabbi. The, the, images, uh, uh, the images that we are given through Christ is that, is that a broken, dishonored flesh becomes God's tool of salvation. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and every symbol of his power is stripped away, every symbol of it. His, his shame is exposed by his nakedness, his masculinity that also gives him, gives him power in the world, being a male, that's been ripped out of his face. And so he's been shamed in every way. Every ounce of like any kind of power that was get, gone. He's whipped, hanging. He's not even in Jerusalem anymore. He's up on the, he's up on the skull rock. That's from Peter Pan. Sorry. Uh, Golgotha. <laughs> Just keep you awake. Um, and, and, and there's this display of... Uh, there's this display of just shame and dishonor and somehow this is, this is how we're to view God, entering into it with us and that this is how you're gonna bring salvation. And that should say something to you. Not just to you and how you feel about yourself but how you look at other people. 
This should speak to all of that. On the one hand, you are fallen and broken and flawed. You need to remember that lest you try to fly too high. On the other hand, you are the presence of Jesus in the world, called to carry on his bodily absence, carry on his work in his bodily absence um, in this world. And, and we need to remember that, that lest we begin to believe what others might say about us, these stones need to be used when people are talking too highly of you. You are dust and ashes. When they speak lowly of you, though, remember, you were created by the hand of the cosmic creator and all of this was made for you. You were put here as one of the crowns of creation to do the work of God and hold the office of, of, of Christ in this world. And so the New Testament is always communicating to us that this is how God understands, not just you, this is how God understands everyone. And we can't ever begin to minister completely in people's lives until we begin to look at people this way as well and to use these tools as well. We are always two things. We are never one thing, ever. Nobody is one thing. Everyone is two things. Um, it, it's not true to say we are simply bodies. You're just, they're just bodies. We're just flesh and meat. There's no soul. Because when you do this, you open yourself to all kinds of injustice. Um, it's also not true to say that we're just souls, that the goal is to escape the physical body and to fly away. That's called Gnosticism. It's dangerous to the work of Jesus in this world. It's, it is something that I believe has been used by the enemy to pull the church away for the last several hundred years. The Gnosticism in being injected into specifically evangelical Christianity that like, the world's all going to burn. It's all bad. God wants nothing to do with it. And it's all going to burn. And we're going to fly away to this other place. No, like, the first century Jewish Christians believed the work of God was here. It was gritty. It was tangible. It was in this world. And that this was the center of God's work. It was going to be the restoration of all things. That he's going to put things to rights and put them to order again. In all the ways that we can clearly see that they're broken. Um, we are humans. We're not just bodies. We're not just souls. We sit somewhere between the spiritual and the physical. We are, we are part of creation, but we're also the crown of creation, created last, uh, uh, endowed with a vocation and an office over all of it, to treat it as God would, to bring it to flourish. And so if, it, it, to order, you know, in order for genocide to take place in the world, first a lie must be told, always. And that lie is that somehow this other person, this other group of people is less than spiritual. They're just physical, but they don't really mean anything. They're less than you. They're, they're less human. My brother is a missionary in Indonesia and in the deep jungles of West Papua. And the only reason that they're actually allowed to live out there with these tribal people and do this work and teach them to read and write and, and, um, and the only reason they're even allowed to do any of this missions work is because the government there um, in Indonesia doesn't view these jungle people as human beings. They view them as animals. So you're not allowed to do missions work in, in this heavily Muslim country. You're not allowed to do any kind of Christian mission work um, to people. But these aren't considered people. And so we're reminding them that they are. And this is what you do. This is how you raise people up. Um, you establish the kingdom of God there in that place. Um, in order for abusive creation to take place, to use creation in a way that benefits us but just tears it apart and, and throws it off. Um, in order for that to first take place, there must be a lie that's told, that all that matters is the soul, that the physical world is simply something to be used and escaped from. Gnosticism is, is, is a life or death threat in our world. It really is to future generations. Um, when we neglect our office of our role and our position in this world to bring God's creation to a flourish, to partner with God and and, and do the work as, as God would do it, 
here. Um, we are taking part in sort of this sacred redemption of all things. Um, nobody is just one thing. Everyone is more than one. Um, as Christians, we first come to the realization that we are both saint and sinner. This is the first awakening that like, when you, when you come to Jesus, you realize there's something higher and that you are not that, but you somehow can be a part of it. That this community of the Godhead, this Trinitarian God, is inviting you into that fellowship. You. You know who you are. And you're being invited to something higher. And that right there is sort of how the idea sort of all starts. The, the Christian identity is always dual. It's, it's to say one without the other is a lie. To leave behind one descriptor uh, or another will make you either guilt-ridden, wallower in, in, in your shame, or it will make you arrogant and prideful and, and, and a judgmental jerk is what it will do. You have to remember that you are both. Loved by God and embraced despite the obvious flaws that you know exist inside of you, despite what you have done to those around you, despite the anger and bitterness that you carry along every day, that God knows and stays. Miroslav Volf wrote this book called Exclusion and Embrace. If you're, a, if you're into theology at all, Miroslav Volf, coolest name, by the way, Miroslav Volf. Um, uh, and, and the book is called Exclusion and Embrace and talks about um, what it means that you're not good enough, which excludes you, but that you are embraced anyway, and, and how this changes entire communities, um, how this should be the posture in the church, how it should drive our desire for justice in the world. Um, and so this is, in fact, it's all of this that I'm talking about also is one more way that you are likened to Jesus when you, when you realize this, because Jesus is never just one thing either. You don't describe Jesus as just a, just a man. You don't describe Jesus as just God. When you describe Jesus as, as, as just a man, um, you're, you're, you're making him a liar because he was very obvious in many ways, telling us who he was. He's divine, divinity in the flesh, but he's also 100% a human being. But on the other hand, you can't just talk about, oh, Jesus was just a God, because then you're diminishing the sacrifice that he made on the cross. You're making God less loving if Jesus was just God, and that's all, not really human. And this was settled, you know, 1,700 years ago in the Nicene Creed, they were written to sort of address all of this. And every time we try to describe what Jesus is without saying both, both God and man, anytime you try to describe like what this is and how this works, you enter into heresy every single time. And so the Christian sort of orthodox idea has been stop trying to describe God. Stop trying to describe Jesus. Understand the posture that God takes towards the world and how God wants you to view God and follow. Get up close the books, and live as Jesus lived. Do the things that Jesus did. And so it's one more way that we are likened to Jesus. We don't speak about Jesus in one particular way. We speak about Jesus in multiple ways. And so to me, what Luke is trying to communicate here is through all these literary devices that I think he's using is, um, I would argue it starts with these dual ideas. There are in each of us uniquely destructive ways and also uniquely um, uh, sort of nourishing ways that we can live. And these things coexist in the same body. There was a song by John Foreman years ago that I always go back to. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, he quotes uh, Micah 7. He says, and both of our hands are equally skilled at doing justice and doing evil, at bribing the judges and judging the judges. At, uh, and and we're, we're equally skilled at both things. And every day we make a choice. Am I following the flesh or am I following Christ? Um, and, and so when you pass judgment upon your opponent, 
I think my hope is that you will learn to say to them, say of them, what you could also say about yourself. Are they good or bad? Are they good or bad? And, and you, uh, well, the answer is, they are dust and ashes. And for them, the world was created. And I have no place to stand aside and, and, and look down on you. A Christian always meets at the bottom and looks up at people. Um, this is the whole idea of, of the beam and the speck. I, I, don't, I don't judge the speck in your eye. I have a beam in mine. I, I need to be too busy work, working on my own thing. And so if you walked in the room, I assume, if you've come to the gathering to hear about Christ and, and to be formed by Jesus and led by the Spirit, no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you're like, I, I, I look to you as somebody who has something to say to me. God brought you into my life. What can I learn about God from you? And in the same token, we submit to each other. This is why house churches are so vitally important. Because it is in the house churches, not on the Sunday gathering. It is in the house churches where we learn to see each other, to hear the voice of God coming from the mouth of our fellow believers who gather with us. We learn to be fed by the body of Christ. We learn to hear from the body of Christ. We learn to love the body of Christ. We learn to, and all of this is meant to fill us up and guide us along the way. We confess our sins to the body of Christ and the body of Christ speaks back to us and says, uh, here's a path that you could walk. Here's what led me out and I followed the spirit and, and, and so I will walk with you. It is a life of discerning. We don't come to the table with a whole list of things and said, how many of these laws have you broken this week and let's spend time in repentance. It's, it's no, like, it's here's me, I struggle with this. I don't even know how to think about this. How do you think about it? Well, I don't know. How do you think about it? And, and you pray and you ask God and you begin to do the work together. What is the Spirit saying to us about how we are to be formed by Christ around this table and this topic and this topic and this topic and this topic? And the goal is not to think right. The goal is to do right. It always starts with loving. The, the, the love of Christ always determines our answers that we come to. The love of Christ always determines how we interpret the scriptures. It goes all the way back to Augustine. He says, if your, interpretation, if your interpretation of the Bible doesn't make you more loving and more accepting of others, your interpretation is wrong. But if your interpretation makes you more loving, more forgiving, more merciful, your interpretation is right. It's the Christ-like thing. And Augustine said this 1,700 years ago. Um, and so all of this brings it back to how we view others, how we view ourselves. When you start to get very proud of yourself for being the only enlightened one in the room, you are dust and ashes. When you start to feel like you are the one who is judged, uh, a common feeling in the church today of, of feeling judged, um, remember that for your sake, the world was created. Uh, when you start to think about how important you are and how much you've accomplished and how much of an inspiration you must be to the people around you, you are dust and ashes. Remind yourself. And when you start to look around and feel inadequate, when you're scrolling through social media and you see just the opulence and the, the finely curated image and the spiritual successes of all these people, know that it's a lie and that they are just like you. And they're crawling towards their sanctification, possibly at the same rate, possibly slower than you are. And if you keep asking yourself the question, what does God have for me today? And how am I to view myself today? Um, that should help guide our interactions with each other and our interactions with God. Um, you are dust and ashes and the world was created for you. You are never just one thing, nobody is. And I think that's what I've been trying to ponder all week and I hope that maybe you can ponder that this week. Um, we're gonna close with, uh, with the Lord's Prayer but first I want our house church leaders, if you guys could go ahead and head to your 
allotted locations around the room. Uh, and we're going to spend some time uh, hanging out in, in this room. There's no uh, cookout today. It was canceled because of the rain. Um, <laughs> yesterday was bad. It was real bad. Um, and so uh, we're going to spend some time and, 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 and uh, sort of look for the house church that's sort of like in your area. Talk to people. Ask what's for dinner. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and try it out. Try to gather with people and, and try to gather and discern the way of life, the Christian life together. So if you would stand with me and we'll close out in this word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Nice and loud. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, be with us this week. Go before us. Prepare the way. Help our conversations to be nourishing and uplifting. May your kingdom be more established every day uh, through your partnership with with your church. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. I love you all. Grace and peace. Spend some time.